step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Good morning and welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for July 23rd, 2017. Koyo Kubose here. So very, very glad you joined us. Yeah, summer is moving along and we're getting a lot of uh, uh, harvest, you know, a lot of uh, vegetables. And it's really a time where we... Uh, we reap what we have sown, <laughs> and our karmic life is the same. There's all kinds of well. In Japanese, there's the Buddhist term innen, which means causes and conditions. And in Pali, I think it's the classic, uh, you know, core of Buddhist teachings in terms of samu um, sam sampati. I always butcher that pronunciation, but that's the same thing as in then, and it's the karmic view, not so much the moral aspect of karma, doing good, then you get good comes to you, but just sort of the neutral, natural laws of the universe and how everything is interconnected, uh, getting that broad perspective, and I mention this because just the other day, one of our lay students called me and wanted to have a little private talk about she was struggling with. Uh, well, she said, Sensei, you, you know, you're always so positive and so forth. And now I know about, um, well, in then type things. Uh, interdependency, I know about all the causes and conditions that, that produce things. But to be, but to appreciate or to be grateful for all kinds of things, even negative things, gee, that's that's kind of difficult. I, I'm sort of getting there, but, <laughs> you know, and I know about the teachings of misfortune is fortune. You know, if you get sick, or oh, that makes you appreciate your health and things like this. And uh, she said uh, she was, you know, her her sort of, uh, I guess, mm, her default setting is 
to look out with a critical eye into the world or how things can be improved or, um, you know, evaluating things. And, and she, as an example, she said that one of the Dharma glimpses somebody gave was, you know, having something like the title was having gratitude for the Nazis. And she said, uh, she just, she wanted to respond to that person, but she, she, she held off because she knew she might, some negativity, you know, moralizing might creep in there. And so she was trying to process her feelings about this and, and so forth. And I never took myself as a object of, of observation in a sense. So I, I was kind of always surprised when somebody describes me in a certain way, whether, whatever it is, you know, uh, I, I guess I, you know, don't put the labels on me, but I said, gee, I'm so positive. I was thinking to myself, am I a positive person? Um, and, uh, uh, well, maybe I got it from my dad. I mean, he, it's not that you don't have preferences, you know, um, uh, it came to mind. I said something like, uh, well, gee, I was thinking about my, about it. And, uh, you know how when airlines serve food, a meal, and sometimes those meals were not too good, um, they microwave them and you get lasagna and the noodles are kind of dried out and too chewy. And and I remember one time I was, uh, now, I like good food. I'm not going to order uh, chewy lasagna noodles, okay, but... You're sitting there, and this is the reality you're in. You don't. I don't think about. Oh, I should whistle in the dark, or I should try to make lemonade and stuff like this. But I'm chewing this lasagna noodles, and I'm thinking to myself, "Gee, isn't this interesting? <laughs> I've never experienced this kind of chewy lasagna." Okay. Now I know that I, I would rather have properly cooked lasagna. Okay. But I think. When I was talking about this one time, someone, you know, they, and you got on the topic of airline food, person, you know, the dominant response is, oh, man, I had this, or or, or when I had this, wow, man, they rail against, you know, all these things and all the shoulds and all the stuff. And so I thought, gee, yeah, maybe, maybe in that sense, when you can't help it, this is the way it is, oh, you, you know, you do the best you can or whatever, and you just, you you experience that now, okay? Um, but it's not like you don't have a preference, okay? Having a preference doesn't, I guess, mean that there's necessarily a strong dogmatic should or, or let the discriminative judgmental mind dominate oneself because we do need discrimination when we live in this relative world, you know? Um, but there is an absolute perspective that overarches everything, okay? Even though we know as human beings we have um, a lot of, uh, well, desires and and greed and all this stuff. Um, uh, But anyway, I was thinking about 
how to be, we're talking a lot about how to, what does gratitude mean? What does it mean to be grateful to something? And it doesn't, you know, sometimes being grateful means there's a lot of sadness involved, not just, oh, I'm grateful for this and that. And we're grateful for food, but there's a lot of more awareness nowadays about animal rights and so forth and, and much more consciousness raising about you know, what we eat. Uh, and um, we realize that lives have to be taken for us to live, okay? And not just sort of a more superficial, oh, thank you for the farmers, thank you for the delivery people, thank you for the cook. Okay. Yeah, but we have to empathize with with the, with the that lives were taken. And that kind of a sadness is a deeper kind of gratitude, perhaps. Uh, not deeper in the sense of better, but, you know, just uh, thinking about the other not not just say hey, I I am so glad for for all these things for what it does for me okay and um, I think this kind of a perspective is is so nice and it when it shows up in concrete things uh, in everyday life that's the thing um, uh, we we shouldn't be just grateful for. Uh, something general like, oh, uh, you know, I, I'm grateful for my health. Instead, you should say, well, I'm grateful for my health because then I could go outside and take a walk and get enjoy the fresh air and so forth. Because if we, if we start to notice these things, then, yeah, there's, there's a flower in somebody's garden. Oh, oh, look at that. Look at that. And um, we start to value life experiences rather than just the material things that we, we spend our money on and get material things. But we should, we should put our resources toward life experiences that make us, give us joy. You know, it's those experiences, not the things that own us that we re- sometimes <laughs> we, we don't realize it, but those things own us rather than we, you know, utilizing them okay sometimes tools become our masters you I, I always like that saying give a give a little kid a hammer and he thinks everything's a nail okay or even in science that they, they got a new statistical methods oh this is great factor analysis factor analysis let's they start factor analyzing everything the tool you know is so great and it takes over and you apply it when it's not relevant Okay, I'm going to introduce our Dharma Glimpser guest, Wendy Shinyo, lives in upstate New York. She was part of our LM2 group. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing from Wendy Shinyo. Thank you, Reverend Coyle. I'm always surprised at uh, how intros, when I, I love to do the Dharma Glimpses live because there's, there's, there's sort of a, I like to see if there's a synchronicity between what you talk about and what I'm going to talk about. Um, so today it, it did it again. Um, I'm always surprised. Or maybe I, because I'm, maybe it's the tool thing. Maybe I'm looking so much for the synchronicity. I always find it. I don't know. But uh, you're talking about taking a bigger perspective and also 
wrapping it up by looking at the small things in your life is 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 very much related to what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, today I want to talk about um, uh, transforming suffering uh, by releasing your cows. It's a concept I got from uh, Titnat Han. You know, the very basics of Buddhism are that there are four noble truths. Um, it's said that these four truths are referred to as noble because they liberate us from suffering. But I've always preferred looking at the word noble from the perspective David Brazier Sensei uses. My remembrance of his, how he uses this term, is referencing our own nobility of taking this human journey characterized by suffering. In other words, we are the noble ones. As we know, the first noble truth is that unenlightened life is suffering. Or, But the better translation of that word dukkha, um, which is sometimes trans, uh, translated as suffering, is really more like uh, difficult or unsatisfactory. You know, life is always always involves some sort of suffering, either painful physical or painful emotional suffering, or that more subtle unsatisfactoriness. You know, when uh, even when things seem good sometimes, uh, there's this uncertainty, sort of like waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's unsettling. It's unsatisfactory. But the second noble truth is that the cause of this is craving, attachment, or grasping. You know, you like something and you want to grab onto it, possess it, keep it forever. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, you dislike something and you push it away. Either way, you're attached. Lama Yeshe said, attachment is where the mind sticks. And this stems from an ignorance about the nature of reality. You know, what is it that really makes us happy? Well, the third noble truth said that it's, it's possible to uh, get rid of this dukkha, uh, extinguishing this sense of unsatisfactoriness, and that's what will lead us to liberation, nirvana, enlightenment, inner freedom, which may be more subtle than I think we like to think about it. The fourth noble truth is that is the active companion of the third, that the path to the end of dukkha is outlined in the Buddhist teaching of the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is the practice to achieve happiness you know, for yourself and others. So my Dharma glimpse today is focusing, though, on the second noble truth, the attachment, grasping, wanting to keep forever the things that we think will make us happy, or continually focusing on what makes us unhappy. It's about that constant battle to recognize that we are grasping at something, that our mind is stuck, stuck on something, and identifying what it is we are attached to or stuck on, and realizing that maybe what we're stuck on is actually not making us happy, but making us miserable. I want to share a little bit about my own personal journey through grasping at loss a grasping that caused underlying frustration, anger, judgment, and reactivity. As I was dealing with a series of losses happening in my life over the past six years, it seemed like a pattern to me. It became a story, and my mind tended to relive and focus on the story of each one of these losses. You know, I said dealing with, 
dealing with is an accurate characterization, but it's not quite true. I looked up in the thesaurus to, about deal to what deal with means, and it's about coping, managing, taking care of, sorting out, or contending with. That taking care of and sorting out, or sorting out and taking care of, is different, isn't it, than coping or contending with. And therein lies the rub. It's about recognizing that we are attaching to unhealthy states of mind. But attachment is insidious. I realize I may have been contending or coping, but I certainly wasn't sorting out or taking care of. Not until one sleepless night in mid-March, when a whole lot of sorting out started happening at my usual 3 a.m. witching hour. That's the time when things in my life, past, current, and future, haunt me. That night, I opened my Kindle to read, to get through that time, that witching hour time, and my eyes fell on Titnot Han's book, No Mud, No Lotus, The Art of Transforming Suffering. I had read the book before, but didn't have a strong memory of it. But this time it called to me, like a bodhisattva emerging from the darkness to help me wrestle with the devil, or Mara. From the minute I began reading the book that early morning, it has had a significant influence propelling sort of a Dharma leap for me. Up until that moment, I had been operating in my own ignorant cushion of understanding about true acceptance, repeating and believing that I was living Reverend Gilmay and Reverend Koyo Kabose's teaching that acceptance is transcendence. I believed I had truly transcended the suffering of those losses. I've even given previous Dharma glimpses about coming to that realization. And maybe I was. Maybe I was slowly climbing a circular staircase of active acceptance, one step forward, two steps back. But Titnot Han's teaching elevated it, helped me to see that I wasn't digging deep enough into those series of losses. You know, I never had the guts to embrace the hurt of the losses and stay with that embrace until the discomfort went away through release or true acceptance. Instead, I was dealing with it by attaching to it. The pattern of loss became a faint rhythm, an underlying backbeat of a story I kept attaching to. Titnot Han stressed that nirvana, that the nirvana part of dukkha, you know, like it's, it's like a, the heads and tail of a quarter, reveals itself if we get deep into the dukkha, pushing our Buddha nature lotus roots deep into the mud. He writes, but we must remember that suffering is a kind of mud that we need in order to generate joy and happiness. Without suffering, there's no happiness. So we shouldn't discriminate against the mud. We have to learn how to embrace and cradle our own suffering and the suffering of the world with a lot of tenderness. Wow. That whole tenderness of our own suffering business was completely foreign to my way of dealing with suffering. A stiff upper lip is my go-to in times of trouble. I was stiff in dealing with dukkha. And like a brittle tree in the wind, I think I was breaking. In dealing with a series of eight losses of people and associations in my life over the last six years, I became stiff. 
And that stiffness itself is a symptom of attachment. I was very far from tender. Titnat Han pinpoints how our suffering thrives. He writes, it thrives because we enable and feed it. We ruminate on our suffering. We ruminate our, on our regret and sorrow. We chew on them, swallow them, and bring them back up. You know, like the farmer whose cows ran away in a story that Titnat Han told in his book, my friends, some friends, some family and associations in life seemed to run away. And each time, I didn't understand why. Titnat Han tells it goes like this. One day, the Buddha was sitting with some of his monks in the woods. They'd just come back from an alms round and were ready to share a mindful lunch together. A farmer passed looking distraught. He asked the Buddha, monks, have you seen some cows going by here? What cows? The Buddha responded. Well, the man said, I have four cows, and I don't know why, but this morning they all ran away. I also have two acres of sesame. This year the insects ate the entire crop. I've lost everything, my harvest and my cows. I feel like killing myself. The Buddha said, dear friend, we have been sitting here almost an hour, and we have not seen any cows passing by. Maybe you should go and look in the other direction. When the farmer was gone, the Buddha looked at his friends and smiled knowingly. Dear friends, you are very lucky, he said, that you don't have any cows to lose. In an instant on reading that story, I understood a lot more about my own attachment and the nature of attachment in general. Titnat Han explains that one of the biggest cows we hold on to is that we have a narrow idea of happiness and we be, suffer because of that idea. He says, you continue to suffer until one day you are capable of releasing the idea and right away you feel happy. Every one of us has an idea of happiness that beca can become too entrenched, too rigid. Every one of us has cows to be released. You know, in my case, and my response to what I perceived to be a pattern of loss, I was rigid around continuing to revisit each one. And like the farmer, my mind kept saying, I don't know why, but they all ran away. I felt the farmer's despair. When your cows run away on their own volition, there's nothing you can do to get them back. You are face-to-face -face with your complete lack of control over your cows or other people. And isn't that the, a major dread in, in life, like losing control, not getting what you want, or losing what you have? Yes, that is the nature of impermanence inter, and interdependency of life. I know all that, right? All about impermanence and interdependency. But attachment is insidious. Even knowing, I continued to revisit shock, disbelief, and anger. And it fed on itself. And yet, I got over it. I got over the loss of each of the cows by burying my feelings until the anger and resentment bubbled over after the election. Titnat Han wrote in the book, the main affliction of our modern civilization is that we don't know how to handle the suffering inside us. And we try to cover it up with all kinds of consumption. Retails peddle a plethora of classic and novel devices to help us cover up the suffering inside. But unless and until we're able to face our suffering, we can't be present and available to life, and happiness will continue to elude us. Indeed, the last of my eight losses was not so much personal 
the last one was more of what I would consider a worldly loss. When Donald Trump became president of the United States, I don't mm-hmm. wish to make this glimpse political, but this is a major perceived loss on my part and seemingly on the part of many. And it was one that I was attached to, addicted to, thanks to my many devices allowing me to find a comfortable network of people raging with me on social media. It was like my bottled emotional response to the series of personal losses was finally able to discharge when the whole country and the world seemed to respond to the results of the election in shock, disbelief, and anger. But thanks to Titnat Han, who tri- he triggered a deep digging deep into the mud. And in the digging, I came to realize that in many ways my clinging to the anger, rage, and resistance against Trump and his administration was how I hid from some of the more personal and painful losses. And in that digging, I realized, just as Titnat Han taught, that you continue to suffer until one day you are capable of releasing the idea and you feel happy. Because we all have these rigid, entrenched ideas of what it will take to make us happy. I suddenly felt a freedom over the losses. Not just a freedom from suffering over my personal losses, but a freedom from the loss of those people and the associations themselves. No, I did not initiate the release of those cows, so they seemed like losses at the time. But after digging, digging into the mud, they were actually, I saw them as releases, a release I didn't realize until I started relaxing into the mud. These releases that created an unin- these releases created an uninvited freedom, a sense of peace and happiness, just like Titnathan said. On that day in mid-March, I took a vow to disengage from social media for 21 days. I took a vow to disengage from anger, judgment, and the reaction that social media and the news offers continuously. And the peace that came from my vow stretched beyond the 21 days. I'm still disengaging from political and other angry, judgmental, reactionary discourse on social media. I read more of the books piling up around me, and I treated myself and those around me more tenderly. I started to notice the world that was right in front of me. Titnat Han teaches that we can make peace with our suffering by coming home to ourselves. He says it requires that we make peace with our suffering by treating it tenderly, looking deeply at the roots of our pain. It requires that we let go of useless, unnecessary sufferings, release that second arrow, and take a closer look at what our idea of happiness is. And finally, it requires that we nourish happiness daily with acknowledgement, understanding, and compassion for ourselves and those around us. Tidnat Han says that letting go takes a lot of courage. And this is our nobility inherent in the noble truths, the letting go. But once we let go, and once we let go, happiness comes very quickly. You don't have to search for it because it's already right there in front of you. So I release the cow of anger over life doing what life does. It separates us from people and things. Friends and circumstances fall away. That's natural. It's the truth of life. So I let it all go. In its place, I came up with four agreements to keep me aligned with my intention. Borrowing the phrase four agreements from Don Miguel Ruiz's four agreements. My four agreements are, one, it's not about me. 
Two, you can't control everything. Three, you can't change other people. And four, just be kind. Release your cows is a practice I will keep. Maybe it can help you too. Titnut Han suggests that we take a piece of paper and write a list of our cows, the things that we are attaching to, either the things we think we need to be happy or, like me, the things we think are making us unhappy. Maybe you can release one a week. It might take months or a year or more, but each release will bring you more joy. May it be so. Gosho. Thank you very, very much. There's a lot of nugget gems in there, certain phrases. Um, you know, <laughs> keep going. You know, we, we had to keep digging. We had, and uh, I was thinking about uh, <clears throat> the mess that <laughs> that is the world and when I think of mess um, I think about oneness and the classic story of my father when he was um, sometimes he was asked to autograph his book and uh, so one time after our Sunday service we are in the foyer having tea and cookies and someone said oh could you have your your, your father autographed his book, Everyday Suchness. And so I, we were standing around having tea. Um, there's not a lot of, you know, seats for everyone, so a lot of people standing around, milling around. So I gave, my father was standing up, and I gave him the book, you know, could you please autograph this? And uh, quite commonly, uh, he would write oneness, and then he would sign his name and the date. But since he was standing up and trying to hold the book and he, you know, he wasn't at a table where it would be a solid surface to write on and uh, he was writing the word oneness and O-N-E-N-E-S-S. Well, that second N, when you, when you write cursive, uh, had two humps instead of one hump. And so it instead of reading one ness, it read one mess. <laughs> and he tried to he tried to correct that M and N, but as soon as I saw that one mess, I, I thought to myself serendipitously, this is our great teaching. So I snatched that book and I gave him I got another new one and he, you know, did it fresh. But I still have that book. And we think of oneness as such a great rah-rah word. But every time, you know, right right there is one mess. Um, what a teaching. It means that we have our plans. We have, you know, uh, but things don't always go the way we want in life. That's a given. First noble truth, right? <laughs> but... but uh, so at the same time, it's right in there, oneness and one mess. And you know, when I write a, I'm supposed to, when I'm, I am going to write an, a book about oneness. And I'm going to save this story to the end. You know, I'm going to, I'm going, I'm going to start in with the, with 
dad, um, for my father. There were a lot of uh, sort of themes. You know, he was not systematic in his approach in terms of, you know, uh, having it be an approach. And you could see it in the words that he would use when he autographed books. Because sometimes somebody shows me a book that he uh, autographed decades ago, and it might have the word suchness. And then there was a period where he used naturalness. Okay? But maybe the last 20 years or so of his life, he, he used oneness. Um, so I, I said, wow, <laughs> this, if we were to use this word to, to, to uh, summarize, capsulize uh, his approach, you know, and I said, well, he, he, the way he autographed these books, this is the way I'm going to start the book. Oh, he was, one day he was autographed, and you could see how then he kind of settled in in his later, more, mat- you know, very mature years, he settled into oneness. So we, we use that as a central concept. And then talk all about it and everything, and then end up with this one mess story. That's my plan anyway, but uh, there's oneness and there's one mess at the same time, you know. Um, uh, that kind of a paradox is, I think, what is what is at the core of religion and religious experience. Uh, and that's why we cannot even get, we shouldn't get stuck even to well, we shouldn't get stuck to the one mess and don't get stuck to the one mess. It's very dynamic, you know. And it's, it's, it, there's a psychological dynamics that, that what religious experience is, is that it, is it embraces that paradox. And I think about the Japanese word, um, shigata ganai, uh, which means... Um, can't help it. You have to. You have to. You, you accept it because you can't help it. That's the way it is. And I remember when, as a youngster, when I heard the adults talk about shigata ganai. Oh, we youngsters didn't like that word. What do you mean accept things? You can't help it, so you have to accept things. If we put the word have to in there. Okay, things things bad things happen. It's, well, can't help it. Okay, might as well accept it. We saw that as a negative thing. But it has been pointed out to me that it's really a positive thing. Take, for example, when the Japanese Americans were incarcerated in World War II into the camps. And this was a time when you really heard that word because the government, the, you know, the police comes and military police, and you're forced into the camps. If you if you your liberty is taken away and... But the attitude from the Japanese culture, which was imbued with Buddhist teachings, is, this is the reality that we're in. Okay. They accepted reality as it is, not how we wanted it to be. And, of course, it was unconstitutional. Of course, it was a terrible thing. Huh? But to really accept it is liberation. Because then, well, what can we do now that we're in this? What, how, do we, how do we deal with it? <laughs> I mean, and a lot of time, 
you know, they were, had to work hard. A lot of them, they had left Japan in the first place because of the agricultural situations that their, their whole life was. So they were farmers. They were working hard in California. Now they had to, they could take it easy. Okay. Or a lot of them it released their artistic abilities. You could, you should see the crafts of all kinds that, that were produced in the camps. Um, uh, that is a tremendous example. And then, well, of course, our job is to see how we could be inspired to really apply this to our own lives. So that's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, keep going, and you have a beautiful day. Thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.